This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And President Biden has left for an overseas trip without finalizing his spending bill, which is in its, let's say, nth iteration. We may actually see a vote within a week. And as it stands right now, reports say it contains new taxes of $1.85 trillion meant to pay for new spending on the president's climate and social agenda. Richard, we've previously talked about a few provisions that look like they may have been thrown out, but there's one I really want to ask you about, and that's this idea of taxing unrealized capital gains. The idea made headlines when it was suggested that Elon Musk, whose net worth is now $300 billion, might face a tax bill of $50 billion. Can you talk me through the logic of how we would tax unrealized capital gains, especially when incomes and wealth go up and down so so much with equities? Um, I could try to do this. It's a somewhat of a complicated story, and I have to begin with the beginning. And the usual claim that you're dealing with here has to do with the scope of the 16th Amendment. This was an amendment which was adopted in um, February of 1913, just after Woodrow Wilson became president. And it was clearly a progressive agenda. And it was designed to overturn a decision called Pollock against Farmer's Loan from the 1890s, in which it was held uh, that the E, the prohibition against direct taxes on the apportionment requirement essentially meant that you had to apportion across the states um, in equal proportion so that citizens in richer states would pay less tax of the income derived from real property. Um, and this created a huge outrage under the circumstances. Uh, most people thought it was crazy. The decision actually was pretty good as a technical matter, although there's obviously a very great difficulty there because much income from real property, in fact, comes from a combination of labor, which is not subject to the apportionment requirement, and real estate, which is. So you have a joint causation problem, which creates all sorts of difficulties that were not mentioned. But to cure this, they passed the 16th Amendment, and it says Congress shall have the power to lay and cut taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment amongst the several states. That gets rid of the direct tax requirement and without regard to any census enumeration. So you don't have to worry about variations in uh, population, which may influence the size of the direct tax. So the key question is what counts as income? And uh, on that particular issue, it turns out that there are two different accounts, one which was accepted in the early 1920s in a case called Eisner and McCumber, and the second which was used as a matter of theory, um, uh, recognized in a case called Glenshaw Glass from the 1950s, based upon what was called the Haig-Simon definition of income. Uh, so to go back a little bit, then it's a bit technical. What happened in Eisner and McCumber is that you had a corporation which had shares, and what they did is they issued a stock dividend. And what the stock dividend did was essentially to say that instead of having one piece of paper representing X dollars, you now have two pieces of paper, each representing X over $2, so that the total amount of money that you have inside the corporation is exactly the same as you had before. And the new shares whatsoever don't symbolize anything other than a reshuffling of the corporate account. And so what Justice Mellon Pitney said is that you have to show that there is a gain from capital or income together, uh, which can be subject to the tax, and you don't get that until there's a realization. Well, there was a distribution of stock, uh, but what happens is it was not the kind of thing that typically happens, which is when you sell stock, you get money, and then the money 
lest the cost of the thing becomes a subject to income. And so he said it was constitutionally not permissible to do so. Uh, there was a very long, learned, and convoluted dissent by Chief Justice, by Justice Brandeis, who says, oh, no, no, you could certainly do all of this. And then he gave other situations that were roughly comparable to this, which would result in taxable income. And so he says, I could force the recharacterization to make it appear taxable. A very unpersuasive opinion. And then there was Justice Holmes, who very laconically said, look, this is such a technical argument. I just don't think it has anything to do with the Constitution. And then what you do is you get the academics, and in a case called Grenshaw Glass, what the question is whether or not you could tax as income uh, the situation in which you receive punitive damages. And that's not anything which is derived from capital or labor combined. It's kind of a windfall. But everybody says it's an increment in net worth, and therefore you could subject it to a tax. So the question then is, what is it that we mean by this realization requirement, and what do we mean by income? Well, if you go back to the uh, basic situation in which realization is not necessary for income, what you just have to do is to prove that there is an increase in wealth, whether or not realized between any given time. And so the question then is as follows. Does that mean if you have a 10-year run of money, is it income that you could tax in a given year? Does that include all of the previous appreciation in the past nine years, or does it only include the increments in wealth that you have in the given year, or does it actually require that you take that wealth and sell it or mortgage it or transfer it to some other form? And this is completely un unknown territory. My own view about it is I think when they say uh, tax income from whatever sources derive, it doesn't say at what particular period it is. And so what you then have to do is to assume that the income requirement has an annual calendar commitment in it so that you can't get previous appreciation. But of course, if you actually sold the stock, right, all the previous appreciation would be subject to tax, even though those gains came prior to the particular year. So the question is going to be whether or not you do the same thing if they just impute a realization, even if they don't make it. This has never been answered in any way, shape, or form. There are situations today where we do tax transactions without realization, but we do it for a very different reason. You're talking about certain kinds of funny uh, instruments that you use for swaps and derivatives and so forth. And what you could do is you could buy one and sell another. One goes up in value, the other goes down. What you do is you sell the one that goes down, realize the loss, and you keep the one that goes up and you don't get anything. And since these things are just straight paper transactions, the common tendency is to aggregate the two of them, whether or not there's realization. And everybody thinks that that's a perfectly sensible solution because what you're doing is you're stopping a form of gaming, but that's not what you're doing here. So I think the answer to this thing is it's a pretty safe bet that they could attach the increment that takes place within the last year, it's a bigger stretch to do it in a previous year. But the real question that you're going to have to do is to ask the question. If you start to do this, there's a huge liquidity restraint. Uh, what are you going to have to do with this stock? Sell it or mortgage it in order to keep it going. Whereas if you've already sold the stock, all you're trying to do, for the most part, is to get money out of cash that comes in anyhow. And indeed, Tom, just to make this a little bit more complicated, uh, if you'll have some patience, oftentimes what you do is you don't sell something. What you do is you swap it for something else, one building for another, one share of stock in a reorganization for another share of stock in a reorganization. And the rule in those cases is we don't want to tax you at that particular point in time, because even though you've realized gain, you still haven't taken cash out. 
out. So the standard practice for literally a hundred of years or so has been to say you get the old basis and put it on the new stock and you defer the gain or loss until the later time because you don't want to upset these kinds of capital transactions. So if you want to change this thing, you have to go through every non-recognition, reorganization, formation provision in terms of the internal revenue code and figure out which of these is going to apply and which of them not. And you can't do that on a weekend. So this is a quixotic venture. As an economic matter, it's a total disaster. The first principle you try to tell people is put the Constitution aside. If you have a form of taxation that's been put together for a 100 years or so, and it's put together by pros and it works, you do not want to scrap a system that makes sense in order to have a short-term windfall gain on taxes. Either you raise taxes across the board, which is politically infeasible, or you don't do it at all. And the whole purpose of a flat tax across the board is if everybody has to bear the cost, it's going to change the political calculus. And what the Democrats are trying to do is put all of this load on 0.02% of the population in the hopes that the rest of the country won't mind, even though the indirect effects of this will reduce investment and wealth for just about everybody in the nation. So it's a dumb idea uh, because extreme proposals for redistribution like that always have collateral consequences, none of which are mentioned in these particular cases, because what the Democrats have done, and I'll just end on this note, is they sort of pretend you could put huge taxes and nobody will respond to them except by paying the taxes. Everything else will remain exactly the same. A dream, a dream. Well, it looks like that provision isn't going to make it through for Thank many God. reasons, including what, what you've laid out for us. The corporate tax rate, however, it looks like it actually might stay at 21%, but there is movement on the global side of things as, as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's international agreement for a global minimum tax rate appears to be um, uh, holding. It, do you see a trade-off between keeping corporate rates where they are but agreeing to a global minimum rate of, of 15% for both domestic and foreign income for corporations? Well, it, it turns out, what does it mean to say that you're keeping things at a constant rate if, in fact, the total amount of taxes that you raise are going to be greater with this new innovation than it was before? And so I, I think it's something of a semantic game. Uh, what they're going to say is that the maximum rate is not going to go up, but there are some corporations that play less than a maximum game because they have all sorts of perfectly legitimate devices they're putting into place. And what this is, it's like the sort of the ordinary minimum tax for ordinary individuals. It's something that's going to take over regardless of what the rest of the situation looks like. And this is particularly dumb. There was a very nice column, I wish I could remember who wrote it, uh, by the American Enterprise Institute, which says, you know, you don't want to start playing these games with corporations and think that you've got some sense of redistribution, as if somehow or other big corporations, which are going to be subject to these things, are more worthy of attack than small corporations. In many cases, it's exactly the opposite. You get a small corporation, closed corporation, doesn't reveal public stuff, and its family members have each of them hundreds of millions of dollars invested in this operation. Think of the Koch Foundation, or the Koch Brothers, rather, and their incredible network, which is a completely private situation. You get a public corporation, it may have 10 times the total revenue, but it's divided amongst a thousand times number of people, and you're now imposing this corrosive tax on church funds, retirement funds, ordinary individuals living on Social Security, you have no idea who the shareholders are who ultimately bear this law simply because the corporation has a lot of money in its treasury. And so it's a kind of a crazy thing. 
then, of course, the question is, what about its allocative offenses? Um, Janet Yellen gets it exactly backwards. What you want to do is to encourage a system of tax competition across borders. And the reason you want to do that is to essentially have pressures to minimize the size of government in order to free up capital for investment and for work. If you parts putting these minimum kinds of situations in place, it starts at 15%, but that's just the principle. It could creep up to 20 or 25%. And the distortions it's going to create in these capital markets are going to be really terrible because a country which has more to offer cannot bid down the taxes in order to get people to start to come there. So this was always a bonehead idea from the beginning. And it stems from the fact that you look at the world in the following way. There's a fixed set of expectations that you wish to charge on the expenditure side. And then what you do is you scramble around to figure out a dumb structure of taxation that will allow you to get it by forestalling political opposition. And the great argument, which I've always accepted in favor of a flat tax on a broad base of income, is you can't play that shenanigans. Now what happens is you have to hit everybody and the political opposition is going to be stronger precisely because you can't say it's okay for you to tax the other guy, even if I get some indirect harm. It's not okay to just tax the other guy. It has a huge amount of distortion. And so the last thing that we want to do is to have any system of public regulation which encourages high taxes. The greater Fed benefits of American federalism is the exit right. And so if you go back to the progressive years, literally the same year, right? or two, in which they passed the income tax, what happened is all these corporations that were headquartered in New Jersey, where Woodrow Wilson had been governor, they were already moved to Delaware because it was a much more favorable environment. And that's exactly what you want to see. You want to see companies move and put their headquarters in places that are receptive to them. And in order to keep that business, Delaware has developed an exceptional set of chancery courts, which actually seem to know what's going on. So this kind of movement has huge positive gain. And the moment you stop exits, it turns out that you have a quasi-dictatorship. One of the signs that you could always tell about a country which is unfair to its people is it always has exit taxes if they want to leave their company. You must pay us back for this, that, and the other thing. And that's a real sign of the fact that you can compete. And it's the first sign of a totalitarian government. And it is not a coincidence that whenever the Democrats start putting forward their wealth taxes or this stuff, they have a very strong exit tax on people who want to renounce citizenship and move elsewhere uh, because they think the taking is not particularly good in this country. It's no joke. Many people may not quit their citizenship, but one of the really terrible consequences of these shenanigans is that our ability to attack foreign capital, uh, to come and invest in the United States will go way down because it's not just the tax that we have in places that are being done. It's the confidence that other people have that an administration that has one bad scheme will come up with another if this one fails. And that's exactly what the Bidens are doing. What the administration has to do is to own up to the fact that a correct system of taxation spreads the burden across the population, and that if they can't get popular consensus, they ought to cut down on some of the benefits they want to create. And many of these, I think, are illusory. Certainly the stuff about the climate, I think, is completely overwrought. And I think it's a mistake to talk about human infrastructure when parents, given discretionary money of their own, will do a lot better in educating their children and taking care of them than will the government who starts to give out direct controlled subsidies. We do not want the state to be the nanny republic. And that's what it is that Mr. Biden's looking for. He's bad news all around. 
Well, this whole debate on new taxes is staring down 2026 when many of the TCGA temporary provisions are going to expire. Uh, Richard, the thing is, many of these things, many of these new taxes are surtaxes on millionaires or multimillionaires. I mean, a new 3.8% income tax rate on the, for people making above $10 million or $25 million. I, this is what I like you and me, I, if if only Richard. But what I see all the time, the argument is, aren't they going to make money regardless of how you tax them? Who cares if they're paying forty five percent federal income taxes? They're making that money. They're going to keep doing it. What's what's wrong with that argument? Well, people respond to incentives. They may well do it, but they'll do it in a different form. And they may take some of their investments overseas and make money there and not repatriate the money in this particular country. They may decide that they're going to change the systems of accounting or investment that they make to get greater advantage from a depreciation program which might not otherwise exist. And they may decide that they're going to increase salaries and reduce dividends with respect to their corporation um, in order to reduce the double tax. One of the things that one should never underestimate is the incredible resiliency of the accounting and legal profession when it comes to putting taxation schemes together. Uh, The entire history of taxation has two parts to it. In one case, uh, people get away with loopholes. That is, they earn economic rents uh, far and above what they pay tax on, and the government is anxious to close it down, and often it does. There's actually another side, which is the government foolishly taxes a transaction, wins on the particular case, and then creates an entire shelter industry and loses a fortune. And what they then have to do is to rechange the rules. Sometimes what they do is they overtax and then they issue revenue rulings, getting rid of the advantages when they discover that long-term consequences are really bad for corporate reorganizations and formations. They just case after case that does this. So this is a really complicated business. And you can't decide this thing on a weekend. Uh, what you have to do when you want to put a tax provision together is get a draft of this thing, then get a bunch of public-minded citizens who do tax planning on one quarter or another and say, how will somebody try to blow this thing up? And the answer is, you may find out that there's surprisingly clever stuff. I I should mention, by way of full disclosure, I started off as a tax professor many, many years ago. And, you know, we had simple tax shelters like the prepaid interest. And when I came out to the University of Southern California in 1968 to start teaching, uh, we were told that the prepaid interest deals would end as of November something or other that year. And so for all of September and October, people just put in one prepaid interest deal after another. Uh, against trying to anticipate transactions to avoid the consequences of this, which created additional distortion. Well, today, that's a primitive tax deal compared to what these geniuses can deal up because they have multiple corporations, multiple partnerships. They can have transactions between charitable, non- and exempt institutions on the one hand, taxable institutions on another. They know how to do this thing on a domestic and on an international scale. So my skills, my primitive skills of 1968 are anemic compared to what these wizards can do today. And it's That you have to be able to counter, and you're not going to be able to do it by having people to try to draft between one Monday and the next Monday a proposal which is going to have the greatest structural changes in the Internal Revenue Code probably since its foundation on all of these issues. I mean, we've had the 1939 tax code. We had the 54 tax code. We had the 86 revision. This stuff is much more fundamental if they actually want to do it in the way in which they want to do it. And prudence dictates that they should cut back on all this stuff. It's the progressive priorities, I think, are crazy, uh, to be quite blunt about it. I'm not in favor of taking over family care uh, by the government. And I think the stuff on climate change is oftentimes hardly misguided. I recently wrote a column on Hoover defining ideas, uh, which tried to explain at great length 
why it is that the recent studies on global warming and military preparedness took an issue which was at most tangential to what the military will do in the five years and makes it a centerpiece is only going to weaken the way in which we start to deal with these issues. So what the Democrats should do is to back off. And if they don't back off, what the public should do is to really punish them. There is no way when you put a bad tax scheme into place that you will be able to confine its negative consequences to your targeted population. The indirect incidences and the passing throughs of one form or another in all sorts of markets will dominate whatever they've done. And for the Democrats, they don't take into account that counter strategies will foil whatever foolish scheme they put into play. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with former tax attorney Richard Epstein. (laughs) Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.